Centuries earlier, if the book of Genesis is to be believed, the ark builder Noah drinks himself into a stupor. Finding his father naked and passed out is hilarious for Noah's son, Ham. He hurries off to fetch his two brothers to show them their father's prone and exposed body. Horrified, the men walk backwards towards their father, covering up his shame with some clothing as they do so. For his act of gross disrespect towards his father, Ham is cursed. His sons will be slaves and servants to their brothers, his father tells him. Now, as the mass of Israelites gather at the border with Canaan, it appears that this curse is about to land. The entire territory of Canaan is named after one of Ham's sons, and another five of his descendants who founded the kingdoms in the region stand to lose everything. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible, episode 45, Scorpions and Snakes. Welcome back to the book of Deuteronomy, a book which few Christians read and almost no non-Christians. And so, if you reach here as a non-believer, you are in almost untouched, dare I say, virgin territory. To be fair, not a lot happens in the Bible's fifth book. Moses is prepping the Israelites in readiness of their land grab of Canaan, the fabled promised land, whose lush farmland, abundant food supplies and plentiful resources have been keeping their hopes up for the past 40 years. As for me, I'm an advertising creative director, fascinated by the power and reach of the Bible and how it has shaped our culture, our language and the way we think. My brother-in-law is Paul, I work with Tim, I'm mates with Dave, Rebecca and Mark. All of these names taken from the pages of this book. You may not agree with the Bible, but you can't hide from it. Anyway, enough preamble. Moses has important matters that need taking care of. In the same breath that the Israelites are encouraged to love God with all their heart and soul and strength, they're advised not to do anything where the ulterior motive is to prove or disprove God's genuineness. Moses warns his listeners to only worship and serve Israel's God and to make sure that their oaths are taken in his name and not that of any other God. On no account are they to follow the gods of their neighbours, he says, as God is jealous and he will be so angry with them that the party will end. He will destroy Israel from the face of the earth. Moses orders Israel's people not to test God like they did at Massa, a place which many believe is the location where Moses whacked a rock with Aaron's staff and angrily produced drinking water to prove to the Israelites that God was among them. Elsewhere in the Bible, the place is called Meribah, but Deuteronomy laughs in the face of the other books that cover the Israelites' journey to Canaan. As with much of Deuteronomy, its account of what might have actually happened is slightly different to the other sources in the early part of the Bible. The penalty for Moses' petulance may seem harsh, given all that he has done to help bring the people out of Egypt and into the desert. However, God knows that, without his divine assistance, Moses is just a very ordinary human being, and as soon as Moses begins to think that he is special and that he has power himself, he is brought down to size. The command, do not put the Lord your God to the test, suggests that it is far more important to trust God than to test him. And Jesus quotes this verse in the New Testament when he spends 40 days in the wilderness of Judea at the very beginning of his ministry. 
In the Gospel narratives, the devil encourages Jesus to leap from the highest point of the temple, probably its southeast corner, which drops down dramatically to the Kidron Valley, and assures him that God will send his angels to catch him, even quoting from the Psalms to back up his case. Jesus knows his scripture and throws this passage about not testing God at the Dark Lord, who backs off to find easier targets. Christians believe that people should accept God through their faith rather than endless proofs, and trying to coerce God into behaving in a particular way is at best inadvisable and at worst downright reckless. Like a mantra, Moses repeats the need to obey God's commands and to do the right thing so that the Israelites will prosper in their new home and drive out all their enemies. In the future, when their children ask what the law means, they are to share how they were once slaves in Egypt until God unleashed terrifying signs and wonders on Pharaoh and his household. They are to tell their sons and daughters that God brought them out of Egypt to a land which he promised to their ancestors. Their side of the bargain is to keep God's laws. Do this and they will not only survive, they will prosper. This attention to following God's rules is described by Moses as righteousness and this word is used to describe godly behaviour throughout the rest of the Bible. The Israelites have caused nothing but trouble for Moses and the others whose job it is to keep order and morale in the desert encampment. Despite his disappointment, God continues to show them preferential treatment and, appearing to use Moses as a mouthpiece, explains to the Israelites why he does this. As he readies the tribes for their final push into Canaan, God spells out how he will flatten all the nations whose land they need to take. He lists seven of these tribal kingdoms whose names will recur throughout the conquest and on until the end of the Old Testament. The Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. The rise of the warlike Hittite nation begins in around 1800 BC, reaches a peak at around 1400 BC and keeps flying until around 800 BC. The Hittites are a ruthless bunch of warriors whose kings are revered as gods and historians believe that they are the frontrunners of the Iron Age, hammering away at their anvils some 2000 years before the birth of Jesus. Their empire covers an area corresponding with most of modern-day Turkey and reaches as far as Lebanon. But as Assyria's power crescendos in the 7th and 8th centuries BC, the Hittites find themselves losing territories like a scatty professor misplaces his keys. The Jebusites rule the land that will eventually become the city of Jerusalem. The Amorite territory is vast and includes the kingdoms ruled until recently by Sihon and Og. The Perizzites appear to be a generic Canaanite nation, while the Girgashites and Hivites barely exist outside of this list of seven tribes. What unites six of the seven is Canaan, the cursed son of Ham. Five of the tribes are descended from his sons, and only the Girgashites appear to have no relation to him. Moses tells Israel that these nations are larger and stronger than they are, and so they must be ruthless. They must destroy their enemies completely, he says. Making treaties, showing mercy and intermarrying will dilute the holiness that gives God's people their shield of invincibility and will turn their children away from following God. Instead, they are to smash their enemies' stone idols and burn the combustible ones with fire. They are to do this because of all people on the face of the earth, 
God has chosen them to be his special people, or, as Moses puts it, his treasured possession. Moses assures his people that God didn't choose them because they outnumbered other nations. The opposite is true. It's a wonder he sticks with them. They are obstinate, they break laws, and they rebel. God appears to have chosen them because he loved them and because he made a promise to their ancestors. This, Moses tells them, is why he rescued them from slavery in Egypt, which was ruled by possibly the most powerful man on earth, Pharaoh. The sense is that God has form, and Moses promises that he is the only God worth bothering with, that he is faithful and that he keeps his promises, not just to these people and their ancestors, but to their descendants too. In Moses' words, God will honour, quote, his covenant of love to 1,000 generations, the only caveat being that these generations must demonstrate their love back to him by keeping his laws. Conversely, anyone who demonstrates their hatred of God by flouting his laws can expect destruction and fast, Moses tells them, advising the following of God's rules as the best overall option for his audience. Those who stick to the rules are told that they will find themselves blessed with plenty of children and livestock, as well as bounteous harvests of corn, wine and oil. None of their people nor animals will fail to produce young, nor will they be afflicted by any of the diseases that rained down on the Egyptians. Instead, these will be used by God against their enemies. All they need to focus on is being ruthless with their neighbouring nations, destroying them without pity and refusing to acknowledge their gods. Should the Israelites be worried how God is going to achieve such impossible sounding victories, the message is that they saw firsthand what he did to Pharaoh, or at least their parents did. They saw what Moses describes as the mighty hand and outstretched arm of God, a phrase that is repeated multiple times in the Old Testament to describe God's power and possibly relates to the Egyptian plagues which are set in motion by Moses raising his staff in his outstretched arm. It's possible that the outstretched arm and mighty hand is a reference to the language attributed by the Egyptians to the power of their pharaohs and that the Bible's writers want to make it clear that God is more powerful than the earth's most powerful leader. Moses vows that God will use his powers against the people who Israel is currently terrified of going head to head with. He will send the hornet among them, he promises, and that hornet will remain a torment to Israel's enemies until even the survivors who are hiding from them have been killed. God may be awesome and great, Moses tells them, but they shouldn't expect immediate results. If every neighbouring land suddenly vacates, they will become wastelands roamed by dangerous wild animals. A gradual approach is advised, and Moses promises that God will throw the nations into confusion and hand their kings over to them. Resistance is futile for these nations, he says. Their destruction is inevitable. In the heat of victory, the people are to refrain from coveting their enemies' riches as they will become trapped by their desire for wealth, an impulse which Moses tells them is detested by God. The spoils of war are the possession of the community, not the individual. Instead, they are to destroy any idols as God finds these utterly abhorrent. The pep talk continues. Before they can move forward, Moses takes his people back. He reminds them of how God humbled them by making them trek for 40 years, then providing them with a completely new kind of food called manna to teach them that people can't just live on bread, 
but by faith in God. This message is later reiterated by Jesus when the devil goads him to turn desert rocks into loaves of bread during his 40 days in the Judean wilderness. Moses adds that the Israelites' clothes didn't wear out, nor did their feet swell, reminding them that God disciplines his people like a father disciplines his own son, the sense being that it is born out of love rather than sadism. Moses urges his people to behave in a way that shows God that they honour and revere him as they are about to step into a virtual paradise provided by him. He describes Canaan as a good land with brooks and streams, deep springs gushing out of hills, wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey. He calls it a land where they will lack nothing and where iron and copper can be dug out of rocks and hills. Once they are there and are enjoying the abundant bounty of their new home, the people must still stick to God's laws. If they don't, they will find themselves living in large houses with plentiful flocks and will risk becoming proud, at which point they will forget all that God has done for them. They will forget how God led them out of Egypt through what Moses now calls a vast, dreadful, thirsty, waterless wilderness filled with poisonous snakes and scorpions. They will forget how God produced water from a rock and provided them with manna, Moses tells them. The provision of manna is seen as a humbling act which kept people dependent on God, tested their faith and set in place the relationship dynamic that would ensure success in their new land. Moses is conscious that in their future prosperity, his people should never forget that it is God who gave them the wherewithal to create wealth and who is doing this for them to honour a promise he made to their ancestors. There is a sting in the tail though. If the people ever forget God and worship other gods instead, Moses promises that God will destroy them like he will destroy the nations whose homes they are about to move into. The possibility of entering Canaan is now more real than ever, and Moses wants his people to be aware of what will greet them when they arrive. However, he knows that it won't necessarily be plain sailing. Not only are the Canaanite nations larger and stronger than they are, with cities whose walls reach to the skies, the Israelites have been spooked by rumours of local giants, who are known in the Bible as Anakites. They have nothing to worry about, Moses assures them. God will go ahead of them like a devouring fire. These apparent bogeymen will be subdued, driven out and annihilated. However, Israel is reminded that none of this is on account of any innate Israelite goodness. It is because God sees the Canaanites as wicked. Keen not to give Israel any grounds for self-congratulation, he adds that the current generation is a stiff-necked people and that God is simply honouring promises which he made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The wilderness years are certainly not the Israelites' finest hour and Moses reels off a litany of their failings. And to be fair, after 40 years, he has witnessed plenty of these. He remembers how he spent 40 days and nights atop Mount Sinai, eating and drinking nothing, while God gave him Israel's laws and handed him the two stone tablets inscribed with the Ten Commandments. He remembers God urging him to hurry down the mountain as the people had already broken one of the cardinal rules. They had fashioned a golden idol of a god in the shape of a calf. Moses remembers how it is God who first describes the Israelites as stiff-necked, 
and that he wanted to destroy them and start over stronger and better with humanity using Moses' family as its source. He describes how he left the blazing mountaintop, discovered the calf idol and smashed the stone tablets in fury. He tells them how on their behalf he spent another 40 days and nights on the mountain, terrified, prostrating himself with neither food nor water, while successfully persuading God not to follow through with his plans for mass destruction. Moses shares how God was angry enough to want to destroy Aaron for his part in the manufacture of the calf idol, but he was able to intercede on behalf of his brother. He then crushed the idol, literally pulverising it and throwing the powder into a stream that took it away down the mountain. The list of failings continues. Moses reminds the current generation that their parents moaned at the hardness of life and were punished by a fire in the camp at Tabera, that they moaned about being thirsty in Massa, where water sprang from a dry rock, and Kibroth Hatava, the graves of craving, where they were punished with a glut of quail after complaining that their diet was too monotonous. Moses clearly has a lot of fuel and continues to vent. Israel refused to enter the promised land when God initially ordered them to, he tells his listeners. Instead, they listened to spies who, for whatever reasons, found the foray into Canaan terrifying and launched a full-scale rebellion against Israel's leadership, the final straw that led to them being grounded for the next 38 years. You have been rebellious against the Lord ever since I have known you, he tells them. Moses doesn't hold back. These people, or their parents, caused him an enormous amount of grief and he wants them to know exactly what they put him through. Had he not prostrated himself before God for over a month begging for clemency, they would have all been destroyed, he tells them. It was he who reminded God that he brought these people out of Egypt in a display of supreme power to be the nation he could mould and shape and which would inherit the land and blessings promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. If only for the sake of these three relative paragons of virtue, God should relent and overlook the failings of the mob that had descended from them, Moses urged. He also mentions his reasoning. If God rescued his people from slavery only to kill them in the desert, how would that go down back in Egypt? Wouldn't that look like failure? His plan appears to have been to change God's focus from the rebellion back to the effort involved in getting them this far, while flattering him at his great strength and power. The picture painted of this wandering mass of humanity is that they prefer going their own way and making their own choices, rather than trusting in God. Moses' words are a slap in the face, but one which is perhaps deserved given how ungrateful the people have been, especially as it appears to be their own silly fault that the quick hop from the Red Sea across to Canaan has taken 40 years to complete. getting quite emotional for Moses. Years of corralling a rebellious, moaning, obstructive people have taken their toll and it's all coming out. Part catharsis, part information giving, Moses continues to recount the history that led to this mass of people assembling by the river. He promises a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven, where Israel will only thrive if its people love and worship God utterly. It's a big ask, given his listeners less than worshipful history. Driven by hope, 
faith, optimism, or a combination of the three, Moses keeps talking. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please do follow Holy Bible on Twitter or Facebook. That's W-H-O-L-L-Y-B-U-Y-A-B-L-E. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star review wherever you're listening. Thank you.